Welcome, everybody, to the Kid Casper Podcast. I'm your gracious, beautiful, blessed, beloved, and black host, the kid they call Casper. The KID in Kid Casper stands for King of Development. I'm that menace with the melanin. Reject me as I am as long as he is still relevant. First off, um, I just want to say thank you for the, you know, the few people <clears throat> that I've reached out to um, over the course of just today, I would say. Um, my mom is at the hospital with my Call my little older brother because, well, most people are shorter than me. You know what I'm saying? Vertically, they're they're smaller than me, but he's older than me and everything like that. Um, He seems to be okay. He's got this mean stank face on his face. Um, For those that know and for people that have been following me for years, um, I have an um, older brother named Larry where he's like 35 years old, but intellectually he's about like three Basically, um, traumatic brain injury and everything like that. Um, loves people to sing Itsy Bitsy Spider. So I just want to say, um, Larry and Mom, if you're watching this right now, I love you guys. Um, Mom, please keep your head up. Um, I'll look after the dogs in case you have to make an overnight visit or anything like that. Um, and, you know, we're just going to keep lifting you up in prayer. Um, I see a couple of my people in the comment section already. I see, see Tyler from North. I'm not North. Um, from California, I see Auntie Tamisha in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, and I got my sister Eb in Virginia. You know what I'm saying? Um, anyway, um, I have a pretty interesting, yeah, a couple of interesting things to get into today, but uh, we're just gonna drop the intro real quick. this is your first time tuning in today hello the kids call me casper the christian rapper slash activist i call myself a raptivist yes i said raptivist rapper slash activist i love jesus but i'm far from a pacifist i'm a leader of this interfaith coalition in the state of maryland as fighting for change within the system um education reform we are working on reforming the law enforcement officers bill of rights um you know, we got some stuff to do. We got some good trouble to get into and everything like that. You know what I'm saying? I see I see my sister Maya made it to the party in the comment section. Um, I don't know where everybody else is watching this from, but the YouTube chat's pretty lit. You know what I'm saying? You get to meet some dope people. Um, also, if y'all get on some foolishness, it's pretty much the only place I have moderators. And either way, if you get stupid, you're going to get blocked. So hopefully everybody behaves themselves. We're going to get into some not so much heavy topics. I mean, this will go however it really wants to go. But um, up? what's up, uh, Carolina Castillo? You must be new to the channel. Thank you for checking this out. Um, Oh, praise the Lord. Yes, my brother, he seems to be, he, everything seems to be well. It was just a quick scare. I was running around and everything today. Um, but yeah, um, piggybacking off of what my sister Maya said, let us know where you're watching this from. Um, and if you could do me a favor like this video, share this video with some people. Um, hopefully this is edifying, educational, and inspirational to some. But anyway, y'all, um, I was in the middle of a, oh, first time. That's what's up. And yeah, 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 like I'm saying. So that's what's up, man. Um, so I was on a podcast last week. I was doing my own podcast. And I had this gentleman on here. And he was just sharing some of his thoughts and everything like that. And I was... 
just very intrigued by some of this stuff. Um, some of the things that he was dropping, just gems and everything like that, from talking about theology, the black experience, um, giving a little bit about his story. And I met this gentleman through the internet. Mama told me not to talk to strangers. I didn't listen. And we're in a pandemic. So what else are we supposed to do? You know what I'm saying? Um, I I was believing in socially distancing before this pandemic. I am an introvert. Um, I don't really like you know, being around people, my dog is smothering my leg right now because there is a storm going on outside and he sheds like a white girl in a windstorm. That's besides the point. Anyway, guys, um, I just want to um, <laughs> I want to introduce to the stage today. Well, to the screen, um, I call him Uncle Rudy Moore from I, I think you guys are in Brooklyn, if I'm not mistaken. You guys are out in Brooklyn, correct? You guys are in Brooklyn. Well, we're from Brooklyn originally, but we relocated to New Jersey. <laughs> oh man, you once once from Brooklyn, always from Brooklyn. So Amen. in my eyes, y'all always y'all always in Brooklyn. But anyway, brother, how how are you doing today, sir? Oh man, I'm blessed to be here. Um, just blessed to be here. Amen. <laughs> That's what's up. That's what's up. Amen. So um, you know, I had you on here briefly, and we talk off camera, um, meaning like we talk offline and everything like that. Um, so this is usually where I give people the opportunity to tell them a little bit about themselves. So tell us about, you know, tell us, you know, tell us very briefly, we'll get into the questions and everything about, but if you could like give a quick little, quick little summary about who you are, um, you know, I'm saying like, you could name what Zodiac sign you are. Not like that has anything to do with anything, but, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, man. Cool. Um, well, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. I'm a first generation American of two Barbadian parents and of Barbadian heritage. Um, I am married for 29 years. Okay. Um, my we wife and I, we met, food kept us together. <laughs> you said food kept y'all together? Food okay. kept us, that's how we met with food and that's what keep us going. <laughs> I met my wife um, at McDonald's back in 1992, um, Martin Luther King birthday. And I had a um, coupon for a chicken sandwich. And my wife was working uh, behind, like near the French fry station. And um, she just caught my eyes. And her co-worker said, yo, that dude is staring at you. You better go get yours. <laughs> um, we talked. Um, I gave her my phone number. Uh, we went out that same night. Uh, we went to see Juice and we went to have a pasta dinner. We talked some more and like the next day and the next day and the next day and then six months later we're married and we're living this life. And um, she's a lover of Christ, I'm a lover of Christ. Um, and praise God, this is it. This is who we are right now. All righty. And you know, I got it. And you've seen the podcast before, so you know what question is coming up next. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> if you had the name of favorite Disney princess, what would your favorite Disney princess be? Actually, it's The Little Mermaid. Um, that was the one movie um, I enjoyed. Ariel? Ariel, yes. The soundtrack got me. The music. <laughs> Her voice. <laughs> That's wild. Um, that's, that's interesting. I thought it was kind of crazy for her to be given her legs to stand on. She had to lose her voice yeah. to meet the man that she loves or 
longed for. I thought that was nuts. I was like, eh, there's a lot of misogyny that plays into (laughs) this movie. (laughs) You know, if you talk about misogyny, if you go way back into time, our world has always been entrenched in misogyny where Mm. women have been traded, literally traded for like land, cattle. And that's why a lot of people um, of certain stature, high level stature, I'll call them, had lots of concubines. And they always had um, a concubine from especially exotic looking women from different regions of the world. So when it came time to trade and barter, maybe for expansion of a kingdom or land or something you have that I need, I will offer you, I don't know, 15 women that you like, oh, wow, this one's from Asia, this one's from Africa, this one's from wherever. And it was very customary for men to do that. So I think over time, that even in that Walt Disney movie, we seen that there. And unfortunately, still women are still killing themselves to please men by appearance. But Mm. I would say now today they have the upper hand in this case because they're the ones who, and, and, and it's a good thing in a good way, they have pushed misogyny aside because can you imagine 50 years ago, <clears throat> your grandmother may have been working in the office and she had to fend off her boss. It's either sleep with me or be on the U line tomorrow. Mm. So, you know, um, thank God times have changed. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, you might surprise me. I don't, reason why I wanted to interview you is because any assumption I could have, I they got debunked. <laughs> so, with my next opening question, um, if and if you know, you might just surprise me. If you had to pick a starter six Pokemon, meaning like six Pokemon that you would have as a Pokemon trainer, wow. I don't know. This you might have an answer for me. I don't know. Uh, yeah. what six Pokemon would they be? <laughs> Number one is Charizard. Okay. <laughs> okay. Pikachu. Uh, uh Squirtle. What's my guy? Um, he used to make the smoke, he was like a rock guy. Oh, I forgot this. He was a rock guy, but he would make smoke, like like dark smoke. He was with the rockets. Um, I'm going to go Jigglypuff. You cannot exclude Jigglypuff. <laughs> what is Jigglypuff, happening right now? <laughs> five. And you know what? I'm going to go one bad guy, Meowth. Meowth? Okay. Meowth. I mean, like, if you want a Pokemon... <laughs> If you want a Pokemon that talk as much as the donkey off of Shrek and Chris Tucker off of Rush Hour, <laughs> go ahead. Like I'm just <laughs> super power is just talking you to death. <laughs> I whoof. Mm. Wow. Surprise <laughs> me. Oh, yeah, I'm right there with I'm right there with you, Tyler. <laughs> I'm right there with you, Tyler. Uncle Rudy and Aunt Tamisha surprise me all the time, literally all the time. That's why we're here today, guys. Um, so, um, and you know, it's funny how, like, even though that you guys have just, I would say, like, come into my orbit as of recently, where we talk more and everything like that. Um, so just to give like a little bit of the backstory of how you guys came to meet me, tell us about, um, tell us about that. Um, and then even talk about um, what we've established or well, what mm-hmm. I've established as far as like the online community group. Um, 
how is that how has that been for you guys so far i mean like you guys are kind of new to the divinity space but talk a little bit about um you know meeting me even though on screen but also just being engaged with this online family we've established well you know um i have to give a lot of credit to a lot of the ministries that we have found online to my wife tamisha because um God just leads her to these people, and they do benefit us. Uh, one of the first people she found was Roy Dockery, Pastor Roy. And then it led to Ruslan. And then somewhere in the midst, we heard Kid Casper. And we started listening to you. And I was like, who's this Casper person she keep listening to, you know? <laughs> and I'm listening, and it's way, way different. And it's like, like a lounge. It's the only way I could explain it. It's like a lounge. The atmosphere that you present on your podcast and then you're tossing like a lounge. And then from there, um, we're just listening to a, um, she was listening to something last week. And I just had to chime in and say, hey, that's that guy Casper, right? And I just chimed in. And that's when I, you know, I started dropping a little bit of nuggets and stuff. And from there, here we are today. Yeah, it's um, I um, well, they don't the public don't really know about this, but we were sitting in and like a and shout out to Pastor Roy, by the way, for connecting all of us together and everything like that. Um, we were in a Zoom meeting, we were in like the the Savage, the Savage Truth community Zoom meeting, and I think we were just we were just about to wrap up and everything like that. And something compelled me in my spirit, you know, most of the people, if not everybody that was in this Zoom call. With the exception of Eddie, Eddie's our token white boy, essentially. Um, but <laughs> um, something compelled me to just ask everybody, um, how is everybody doing after the trial? You know what I mean? The Derek Chauvin trial. And we just, it went from, it was supposed to end at 1030. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> to, I was talking to you and your wife. And couple of my, a couple of other of our um, my brothers and sisters in Divinity, we were talking to you guys till like 2.30 in the morning until yeah. I was just like, all right, guys, I'm exhausted. Um, <laughs> I need to go to bed. I got meetings in the morning, but this was great. But um, I just, it's just funny how like, it's funny how like um, just me, I guess like, and I try not to take all the credit, but like I said, something just compelled me to kind of just ask the question. Oh, but it's funny how me, just diving in head first, open this space for conversation where we were all just able to like minister to one another and oh, just man. talk to one another and everything like that. I thought that was beautiful. And like, uh, you know, once again, had you on the podcast last week, you debuted on the podcast on a group podcast and you said a couple of things. I was like, now he ain't going to just say that and act like he ain't just say that. I'm like, where I was asking you, I was interrupting my own self. I was like, sir, you know you're getting interviewed on here. Like, <laughs> you know you're getting an interview next week, right? Um <laughs> hey, man. But but um yeah, man. So um I guess and I'm learning as this too. So I always take the time and I not to say I don't appreciate um, my monitors are over here, but like my cameras right here, but not that I don't appreciate the people that are over here that are watching and everything like that. But this also gives me the opportunity to learn a little bit about you too. So uh, if you want to, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, like, you know, upbringing, everything like that. Like I, if as far back as you can remember, tell us a little bit about yourself and your story. Yeah. Um, well, growing up in a uh, traditional Caribbean, um, family, we were very conservative. Uh, that's how we grew up. Mom, dad, um, 
granny and granddaddy, auntie, <laughs> uncles, cousins. Um, we were the epitome of it takes a village to raise a child. And everyone was involved in someone's child's life. So whatever my mom and dad believe in, it was supported by my uncles, my aunts, my grandparents. So we were all on the same page. Um, I would say it was a little sheltered. Um, I wasn't like most, um, in this case, most black kids because when my parents came here uh, from Barbados, it was a different way of viewing life. Like um, here in America, <clears throat> children have an opinion that they could tell to their parents. Back then, um, the 80s, it was like, you're not gonna speak back to the parent. Whatever the parent says goes and that's it. And I have a very funny story about that one. Just remind me to tell you, my dad told me one day. So um, growing up that way, very conservative, education first, um, you know, do your best in, in school. Um, me, mom, dad, and sister. And you know, you would never believe that we lived in a one bedroom apartment for several years because the way we kept ourselves, you know, presentable, um, clean, um, back in the 80s and 70s, um, a lot of black kids had trouble keeping themselves clean. You know, they came from maybe a poor environment, um, an environment that's troubling, which we hear a lot more today. Um, my sister could never say that my dad touched her in the wrong way. Um, I can never say, we can never say, we never, my dad never lost his temper to the point of injuring my mom or injuring us. So we grew up in a very safe household. I oftentimes tell people that if we were ever on the verge of having the electricity cut off, we never knew. The electricity was always on, the fridge was always full. So I, I lived a very, um, a very good childhood. Um, in fact, just up to today, my, my sister and I, we were texting each other and we were reminiscing about something from our childhood. And our childhood is always humorous. And that was one of the things that um, we love about our childhood. Um, other than that, you know, just growing up, um, going to school, being a good kid, um, nothing so special or fancy. Um, in school, um, I was a borderline kid. I wasn't the smartest kid in the school. So I needed a little extra help. And that's just because my mind was always in the stars. <laughs> I would, um, while in school, I would always be in fantasy mode. And I think I enjoyed learning new things, but I was always in fantasy mode. Like I was always doodling. Um, one time in the third grade when we had like um, PSAT test kind of thing, which was called CDY back in the day they had these booklets we had to write our name in. And I remember I, in the third grade, I was drawing little cars and fire engines on the bottom of the page for each page I flipped over. And it's just funny, um, that, that's just how it was in my brain, you know. Going to junior high school, um, I developed a hobby of action figures, uh, G.I. Joe. Um, that led me to become a military enthusiast. Um, I think I had it in me before G.I. Joe in 1977, 78, when Jimmy Carter was the president and Ronald Reagan came up behind him 
and he assisted with getting some U.S. hostages free because mm-hmm. he threatened military action of some kind. Jimmy Carter lost the election. Um, president Reagan came in. He was known as a military president. And from there, I'm going to assume that my military um, interest took off then. I'm having that hobby, um, going through school, just being a military enthusiast. Then I started picking up the hobby of sharp weapons, um, knives, bladed <laughs> stuff. Yeah. That's my hobby. Um, um, what do you call those? Martial art weapons, nunchucks, spears, throwing stars, shurikens. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that was uh, junior high school. And um, speaking of junior high school, one day my friend and I in the eighth grade, we went to Prospect Park because we had an issue in school. So one thing, um, a person who knows me, knows me, like know me, know me, know me knows I cannot stand bullying, cannot stand bullying. You, in my flesh, you will meet your grave (laughs) for bullying. So in the eighth grade, we were in a class. Again, me being my fantasy world, I was in a borderline class. So we were in between seventh grade and eighth grade. And we had to do stellar in order to be promoted to, to go to high school. There was a group of guys, like maybe five, six guys that would terrorize almost every teacher we went to every period. And they used to terrorize this one teacher named Miss Stewart. She was our social studies class. And because she was very passive, um, I think she was the only white teacher we had. Blonde hair, short, maybe five, five, maybe five, four back then. And they would throw spitballs, paper, and everything at her when she turns her back to right on the board. So one day she threatened the class that she knows that we're borderline. And if we do it one more time, she's going to write the letter to the assistant principal and we'll all be held back and go back to the seventh grade. I remember my friend and I, his name is Anthony. We, um, we, we got together and said, yo, we can't go back. I, I, especially me. In the third grade, I was held back because I came from Catholic school into the New York City public school system. I'm so but, sorry. You know, for <laughs> real, Listen, for real. I got held back, and I had to repeat the third grade. So I was not going to do that again for the eighth grade. Absolutely zero. So after that class, uh, these three, these five guys, I told my friend, I said, yo, listen, we got to do something. He said, yo, let's talk to them. So... In his mind, he said, hey, let's talk to them. In my mind, yo, let's talk to them. That's me. <clears throat> so we confront them, and they're taking us like, what? please. And now, I if said, I could ask, now, if I could ask, what were you working with back in the day? Like, what was your build? Like, you saying, you saying, um, let's talk to them, you know what I'm saying? Like, what, if you had to give me, like, a build, like, height, weight, benching um what what was you doing back in the day that you were just like you were the enforcer like what what was what were we working with back in the day in your in your prime youth as my father was saying and what he told me i was working with this mm. what if the imagination can create the body can make it happen mm. and my father was that kind of guy and 
My father spoke to me one time. One time I came home crying from school, <laughs> going back to like the second grade. I was like, Daddy, this guy beat me up. And he said, oh, yeah, that's what's happening in school. Let me see this guy. So my father came up to the school and he stood across the street. And he was like, point out who did it. I said, that guy. He's like, I said, yeah, that guy. My father, says, my father got into the car. And I'm thinking, okay, Daddy's like, yo, he's going to work his magic. He drove off. He didn't speak to me. And I said, like, three blocks later, he said, listen, that dude is shorter than you. You see, <laughs> he said, don't you ever call me up to the school for nothing like that again. He said, you better learn to fight. I said, but dad, how? He said, you got hands, you got teeth, you got feet. Use them. I said, okay. <laughs> teeth? Like, good God. Yeah. Like <laughs> Before my Tyson and Evander Holofield, dad was that, was that dude. He was so, that. He was like, "Look," uh, he said, "We couldn't, we couldn't agree on war terms to keep us out of this fight. So whatever you gotta do to win the war in this fight, I mean, hey, get it done." Yeah. So that's how <laughs> what it was. So now, fast forward now to the eighth grade, and these five guys. I'm um, still growing, so I'm say about five six because I'm five eight now. The tallest dude was roughly back then, say six feet. Big dude back then, maybe. A buck fifty, buck eighty for a junior high school person, and other guys, you know, all average. Junior you know. high. This what is the hell was y'all. Yo, this is junior high. Eating? What were y'all eating, kids? Hamburgers like my milk. <laughs> the school lunch. <laughs> y'all was eating. Y'all was eating batteries and kids. My <laughs> God, like <laughs> that's yeah. crazy. So this one too. So when they were like, like dismissing us. I guess it showed in my face, and I stepped to the person who, it was his name, the tallest guy. Let's call him D, because he's still alive today, and I don't have to like, oh, shoot, you're talking about me, because I saw him in our adult life, but I didn't say hello to him. And I stepped up there and I said, what you got to say? And my friends looking at me like, oh, wait, hold on, we're supposed to be talking. So the other guys, they're coming like close like, to surround me and said, I said, good, please throw the first punch. I want you guys to throw the first punch because you don't know who I am. I said, today, everyone believe it in our body bag. And I'll take mm. pleasure telling the court that I did it. And I'll spit in the face of whoever. That's me, whatever age the eighth grade is, 14 years old, 14. Because I was not going to be left back. And I spoke and I said, if you guys bother that teacher one more time, you'll answer to me. They walked away. I bet all, they anyone, did. all anyone did under their breath, man, you crazy. So my friend, he's like, I don't know if that went well, this and that. So we're trying to figure out what we're going to do. So I told him, listen, I'm going to be straight up with you. I got left back in the third grade. I'm not doing that twice. I'd rather die before I get left back. That's how mad serious it was to me. Uh, we went, he started talking about um, let's practice karate and stuff. So we'll go to Prospect Park twice a week. That's a big park in Brooklyn. And we would do little karate moves and stuff like that. I was very clumsy. I'm not a finesse kind of fighter. I'm just, I grab you. Just as my father said, you work, use your weight against him and use your force that comes down on them. And that's the way I have done it. I thank God I was never into too many fights. 
I just use diplomacy first. But of course, if you don't want diplomacy, then you'll catch these hands. You know what I'm saying? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, truth is truth. Um, one day just in school, because the way I spoke in school, people made fun of me because they say, oh, you, where you're from? I say, well, you know, I'm born in Brooklyn. You ain't from Brooklyn. You talk, you have an accent. Where's your family from? From Barbados. Oh, and they made fun of my Caribbean accent. They made fun of my proper dress. Um, I'm the type of kid that came in school, maybe one Monday and Wednesday, I come in a shirt and tie. Public school. We don't need to do that. But I, that's the way I felt comfortable coming to school. So sometimes the kids will pick at me, you know. So I said, okay, no problem. So I see how this is going. There was one kid, another bully, who felt the wrath. Um, we were coming from gym. So, you know, we had lockers in the, in the locker room. And this one was in the seventh grade this time. This was in the seventh grade. And as I'm changing my clothes, he pops me across my, my back underneath my arm with a wet towel. I say, yo, I say, yo, Jay, stop, stop. I'm putting on my pants. He popped me again. I say, "Yo, Jay, man, stop!" So I, I throw on my 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 shirt fast enough so I won't get hit again. As I'm, you know, turning the combination lock, I get popped one more time back in my head. Same wet towel. I don't say nothing this time because the way I lived, because I was the quiet kid, because I was a kid who looked like an easy target. I was the one who carried, and I, I'm going to get into that that story too, how that came about. I took an extra padlock. I always, I'm those people, one of those people that carry two of everything sometimes, like Batman. Gotcha. I was fully prepared, my utility belt, and I put my padlock with the the hook facing out like a brass knuckle. So we're waiting at the door, waiting for the the bell to go off to go to the next class. So I just walk up very quietly behind him as he's talking to his friend. And I take my padlock and just down his spine. He um, was like this. He wanted to cry, but no sound came out. The, hmm. adult, <laughs> the adult school monitor um, was like, oh, my God, what do you do? What's wrong with you? And I explained what was the problem. And... You know, back then, you know, when you are in a school where it's lawless, I was mm. one who I took matters into my own hand. Because when you tell the teacher what's going on, they just move you. They never move the kid who's a troublemaker. They never do nothing to the troublemaker. You're always the one single out. Oh, let's move you around, move you to the front. I'm happy being by the window. Why have to move to the front? Because the bad kid is being bad. Why am I being punished? Move the bad kid to the front so you can keep an eye on him. Don't move me from my comfortable position. So I was always one from that age that said, um, you guys are part of the problem because, you know, the teachers and the principal, they didn't do nothing to the bad kids. And the good kids always had to suffer in fear. Again, lunch money uh, taken from them, maybe get their book bags thrown into the street. And I was one like, mm -mm, not going to happen to me. So that same kid named Jay, who I came down on him, maybe a couple of days later, because he didn't show up to school. And 
my home was walking distance, a few blocks away from the house. And because, you know, everyone knew which route I took. I, you know, back then I wasn't like changing my routes as we would now as adults. Right. So these three guys come up and say, yo, yo, we heard that you, um, you did something to Jay, man. Uh, this and that. What was that all about? So these three guys, um, one of the guys was his cousin. So they got me surrounded. One guy here, one guy here, and the other guy here. So I turn around and look behind me. Hiding behind a car is Jay. I say, wow, three men on one man. And, you know, back then I I walked strapped, um, knife, dog chain. <laughs> you see. <laughs> Look, you said I walked around strapped. My mind immediately Yo, went he got a 22. Pocket. Like, <laughs> I was like, this man got the 22 with the hollow tips. He's like, I'm not playing with y'all today. Do you understand me? Like, <laughs> So I had that on me. They didn't know what I had on me. Um, my father became concerned one time because he saw the dog chain with the um, padlock. I get to that why he became concerned. So they didn't know what I had on me. I just kept my hands in my pocket. And I just told this, the, the dude who was standing from me, and the three of them had me surrounded. And Jay back there, hiding behind a car. I told him, why don't you come out? Why don't you come out? You're scared? So his cousin said, no, no, no. You talk to me. You talk to me. I said, listen, I want to say this. I never turn my back on someone I'm afraid of. And I walked right between them and made it home. No incident. That's just the way I grew up. That's the way my father grew me up. And, mm. you know, we, some people may say that's um, hyper-masculinity or whatever, but I believe a young boy should be able to defend himself. Mm. Um, because when we become men, the Bible tells us we have to defend our wives, right? As husbands, we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life to, for the church also. So before knowing that verse, that's what I was doing. Now, the reason why my dad became concerned about me walking with a, a padlock with a dog chain on it, he didn't know I had the family knives on me, was because one day uh, one of the kids rolled up and said, yo, yo, I see where your mom began off at. I see where your dad began off at. And he said, you better be careful. And from then, wherever we went as a family, whether it's food shopping to the movies, wherever, I had that with me. Because one day we passed by a group of guys who were like, yo. And I was like to myself, if it's going to go down, I'm going to defend my family to the death. That's me. Um, that's just me. And my father grew me up that way because um, one last story about fighting and all this other craziness. Um, one night, my dad was um, coming home from work. It was payday. And you know some dudes from the hood, they, you know, they scope you out and they kind of like know your pattern. So one night as he's coming, you know, coming back from drinking with the boys and chilling, um, like three guys surrounded him, put a gun to his head, said, yo, give us your money. Gave them money. And then they said, yo, yo, the keys to the car. Because he had a black Dodge Monocle, a 70, 78 or 81. Dodge, yeah, Dodge Monocle. Beautiful. Because it, it was decommissioned as a police car. <clears throat> and we picked it up at the lot. And what made this car special one day when he was looking for a car, um, my dad, he asked my sister and I, which car do you guys want us to drive? My sister and I were like little teenagers and he allowed my sister and I to pick that car. 
you know. Um, if that was in back in 82, I was 11. My sister's four years younger, so she was seven years old. And we picked that car. My dad paid for the car. Um, 2269AJA, that was the license plate. Never forget it. So the guys, you know, hit my dad in the, hit my dad in the head with the gun. And guy went to pull the trigger and he heard click because my dad threw the keys to the car. So when that happened, they got angry. One guy went for the key. Other guy hit dad in the head, put the gun to the head and pulled the trigger. But the gun just clicked. That was on Thursday, Thursday night. So dad comes home, has a little bruise and whatever have you. And he borrows a friend's car because um, he has to take my mom to work. That's Saturday and Sunday. And also he has to go to work Friday. I can't remember if he stayed home to do the police report. But I do remember Saturday we use his friend's car. And then Sunday we use his friend's car to pick my mom up from work. She worked from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. So as we're coming down, um, and this time we took a different route to get home. It just happened. Took a different route. We came all the way down. Northern Avenue. And I think my dad was looking for his car in the area where he was robbed at. So we're coming down all the way Northern Avenue and we get to President Street. This is in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. And as my dad is driving, we're driving on the left-hand side because back then um, it was a two-lane uh, Northern Avenue used to be. And right there on President Street, right there at the light, like gold, my dad's car. My dad, like a police officer, blocked the intersection. Boom. He went to jump out the car. He went, he went to grab a crowbar. I went out behind him because that's just the way I am. Because my dad grew me up to say, hey, you're good. So oh, you good. Were, now, you're still 14 at this time, if I'm not um, mistaken? When this happened, 13, 14 years old. 13, 14. Okay. Yeah. So um, my dad always trained me that when he comes home and if he falls asleep, he says, you're in charge of the house. So that's the way that was in my mind from the time I was a little boy. So when my dad got out to go and confront those three guys, and I, I ran out behind him. My mom called me back. Like, no, no, don't go, don't go. In my mind, like, mom, it's going to be like three on one. So when my dad, he walked off that crowbar. It was summertime, and the guys had, and my dad was super pissed off. The guys had the windows rolled down and their air conditioner on. So my dad was like, yo, you're killing the gas, you know? So my dad reached right inside the car, took the keys out of the ignition. The three yo. guys ran out, <laughs> one out of the driver's seat, one out of the passenger, and one in the back. And they all went three different ways. <laughs> mm. And um, it looked like a police scene there. And my dad's just checking the car and everything. He's like, come back here. Come back here. <laughs> So they all ran, and he's like, yo, they don't have their gun today. That's why they ran. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You may have a crowbar, but I guess they didn't expect that either. Oh, so, your dad sounded gangster because this man reached into the car window, turned the car off, and they were like, hey, yo, like, we just we just pistol whipped him, like, last <laughs> week, and he's going to reach his arm in? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they knew better. They knew what time it was. That's what yeah. happened. <laughs> so um, me growing up that way, um, my dad drove the car home. My mom, she had her license, so she drove the car in, the other car that we were in, home. 
my dad went to tell the police, hey, listen, we got the car back, whatever. So they won't stop and say, hey, this car is stolen. Hey, I'm the owner, you know. But uh, that's the way I grew up as a boy. And um, justice has always been in me. Um, I come from a family where we have lawyers, judges, um, my great uncle, um, Elliot Belgrave, he was, he stood in for the prime minister back in 2012, 2013 in Barbados when he was ill. Um, my great uncle Elliot Belgrave was a Supreme Court justice. Um, my grandfather on my father's side, he's Irish. So he was also what they call in the English system a magistrate, which is still a Supreme Court justice. So if there's DNA in me that make me crave justice per se, and to stand up for people, um, that is who I am inside. And um, if I wasn't law enforcement, I'm sorry, if I wasn't um, in the medical field, I definitely would have been in law enforcement. But my uncle, I have two uncles who are lawyers. Um, one uncle told my dad, don't let him go into um, law enforcement. If he want to change the system, let him become a judge, you know, or a lawyer to help change the system. Okay. And you said, I remember you mentioned this last week. You used to work, you said you were in the medical field. And one of the things that we were talking about, you were saying you could see the difference of interaction when you were in, like, I think you said, like, as an EMT in the back of the ambulance, and then you saw firsthand, like, firsthand experience, like, how officers would act around, like, you know, people that look like you and me, like, black and brown yeah. people that yeah. are um in compromising situations and stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> so one of the things that I touched on um, at one of these protests I was um, leading, and I was talking about how... <clears throat> Racism does not just play into like police interactions, but mm -hmm. like within um within like you know with doctors, um paramedics, EMTs, everything like that. Um, yeah. I have a story of a brother of mine that he was born on the day his mother died. You know what I'm oh saying? My um, God. yeah, it was terrible. Like she, you know, she she struggled with um she struggled with like you know drug you know substance abuse and everything like that you know we all i myself as you know um celebrated nine years of sobriety from alcohol um two weeks ago but it was um i want to say washington heights is where they were living at at the time mm -hmm. apparently when he was when he when she was pregnant with him and he was saying that his uncle told him when he got older he didn't tell him until like last year though um because he never knew his mom but he was saying like when the paramedics showed up, because she, apparently she like OD'd, and they were like, "Ah, oh, it's just another junkie." But then the uncle had uncle had to let him know, like, "Um, she's pregnant." You know what I'm saying? And then they were like, "Ah, well, the baby may not even make it anyway." You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the posture and the urgency to save this save this woman and this kid was just not there. And <clears throat> ever since, like, he found this to be truth to him, mm. he's like. He, he was telling me before I like went out there one day, he said, if you think it's just the cops, you got it all wrong. Right. And I was curious if you have any of your own, like you said, you've seen like how the police interact, but yeah. do you have any of your own stories when you see how 
people interact with people that look like you and me in those compromising situations, whether it's with the EMTs, doctors, um, ambulance, you know, um, in first response um, cases like that. I don't know if you had any experiences that you wanted to share today. Yeah, um, I want to reverse to that. Um, okay. Come from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. And it says, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. I've seen a lot of that in um, two hospitals I worked at um, where you treat, nurses have treated um, individuals based on color and appearance. And, you know, you just never know um, who you're speaking to. Um, I've always treated a person, whether they're homeless or a dignified, apparently rich person, the same. There is no difference to me. Um, even if you were a doctor, I'm going to treat you the same way I would treat the, the older lady in the bed next to you or whatever have you. I'm not going to treat you any more special or go running for anything. That is just who I always was. And I was criticized for that. Um, but, you know, it's funny. There was a nurse. And this is, this is the point I want to bring out. Because, you know, when we're as healthcare professionals, we have the power of knowledge. So we know that, hey, if I was um, cutting chicken and I cut my hand, I know what to do. I have peroxide, benadine, cling wrap, bandage, keep it up, check it every two days, every every day, make sure it's not turning green, blue, or yellow, and let it mend on its own, depending on the size of the gas. The regular person, yo, I just cut my hand, I'm going to go to the hospital. And a lot of times when a nurse or a practitioner sees that, oh my God, you came to the hospital for this? They don't have the power of that medical knowledge. We do. We can assess our own cells. And many times, healthcare professionals diagnose their own cells and say the worst, the worst patient is a medical professional because we're telling you how to treat us and you're not giving the doctor an opportunity to assess you. You're saying, oh, this is it. Here goes my uh, blood pressure, my blood sugar. And like, okay, okay, cool. You did all that before you came here, but I still have to do that here and document what it is here. Going back to lay people, they don't know. And what was very commonplace, and I think um, I think last year changed a lot of people's posture who work in healthcare, emergency medical care, is that what was practiced behind the desk is we would criticize them among each other. Can you believe mm. he came with a little cut? It's no longer than my, my pinky. Oh, can you believe they're wasting our taxpayer dollars because a lot of them were on government assistance. So the idea is they're wasting money to come to check out something. But again, they don't have the power and knowledge to know if I cut myself, is this cut deep enough to warrant a hospital stay? Um, or hospital visit. They may not have peroxide at home. They may not have um, betadine. Because I'm a medical person, almost like every medical person, and um, especially first responders and um, immediate care, we all have all that. I have a bag full of um, all that stuff for both here and if I can help someone outside my home. And that's just something most medical people practice. So I've seen that. 
Now, the adverse to that, that brings many of us down to being human, there was one of our nurses. Uh, she had took her 15-year-old daughter, her husband and her son. They went white water rafting somewhere. And what happened was, as they were white water rafting, the nurse, she and her husband was in one raft, and her daughter and someone else was in another raft. The daughter's raft tipped over or capsized. So when everyone got out the boat to get back into the raft, the daughter's the only one who did not show up. What happened was the daughter, when she went to stand up, her feet, or one of her feet got trapped in between two rocks. Now the, the river is growing very rough because you're white water rafting and she cannot keep her balance. She's falling down. So now she's taking in water. That nurse who's an emergency nurse now was in the place of an everyday person watching their loved one die in front of them. Her daughter was drowning. People came into the water to try and um, loose her foot from in between the rocks. It took almost 11 minutes. By that time, they're doing CPR and all this stuff. She don't have a pulse, no response. And where they're located, they called in for a um, airlift so she could be medevac to the um, hospital. Helicopter comes, paramedics come off, and they roll her into the, the um, air ambulance. The nurse, being a mother, in her, in her bathing suit and everything, goes to get on the helicopter. The paramedic stops and said, no, you're going to have to drive to XYZ Hospital. It's like an hour away. You meet us in the emergency room. The doctor will come out and get you, etc." She said, but I'm a nurse. I'm from New York City. And the paramedic responded, you're not a nurse here in this state, so you have to drive. For her, she realized, wow, this is how I, as a nurse, treat the patients who come into my hospital. When she got to the hospital, she waited in the, in the waiting area for a significant amount of time for a doctor to come and tell her the condition of her daughter. Her daughter survived. The benefit to that was when she came back from that vacation, she became the best nurse we had on that night shift. She was more empathetic towards people and she didn't partake in the criticism of, oh, my, my pinky was blue from like two weeks ago. I just wanna know what happened now. And it was just the, the mannerism of the habit of, of hospital people especially to criticize, oh, two weeks later, what we'll makes one more day? But she learned, she said, you know, what's your name? You've been here for like uh, two hours just for Pinky. Let me speak to a doctor on your behalf. And that's what nurses are supposed to do. They're supposed to advocate for the patient. Even if it is two o'clock in the morning, people don't come to the hospital two o'clock in the morning just to knock around. Sometimes they come there because there's a serious issue. No one gets up and say, oh, you know, I'm going to go to the hospital and just chill off the staff at 2 o'clock in the morning. No, if I'm there at 2 o'clock in the morning, it has to be something for real. Coming off of work, take care of the kids, make sure the homework is done, wait for the significant other to come home, and then I'm running to the hospital. And because a lot of us as healthcare workers don't put ourselves in their shoes immediately, that's why they become very callous. One other story, even lending to the EMTs. I was a CPR trainer at one point um, and we had a big class 
And uh, these are guys who are coming in to renew their CPR certificate. You do that every two years in New York City. Gotcha. And um, one guy, I knew him very loosely. He worked in East New York, East New York, Brownsville. Out there in East New York, Brownsville, there's constant shootings and constant death. After a while, people turn themselves off. They turn off the empathetic part of them. So as we're doing the um, CPO and the mannequins, I see him doing it wrong. So I say, hey, my friend, you know, it's like this. He's like, yeah, 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 I, I know. I've been doing this for 18 years. So I, I say, that's cool, but I have to see you do it correctly in order to pass you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, man, just, just go somewhere. I work in East New York. I do this every day. So he blew me off. So I went to my senior and I told her, I said, hey, listen, this guy just blew me off, da, da, da. So she's okay, I'll take care of it. So she walked over and she's observed him doing the CPR and he did it wrong again. So she intervened, said, hey, you know, um, you're supposed to go like this. Yeah, 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 I've been doing this before you were born and ah. Uh. So she looked at him. So she goes to the director to get him involved. And he didn't know who the director was. So he tells the director the same thing. The director I know of EMS services, he's the most chill guy, humorous all the way, 100%. He made this man like red, like a tomato. He said, come here with me. I'm not going to give you a CPR card if you cannot demonstrate to me that you could do CPR. It's about saving lives. It's not about how burned out you are. And if you're burned out, maybe you should find a new profession because if you arrive to someone, if you arrive to my grandmother's house and I see that you're doing CPR wrong, I'm going to kick you in your face. You get over there to that man again. And that's the first time I ever heard that dude like, use strong language. So he was pissed. And we got him to do the uh, CPR the right way. The long story short is that sometimes if you're working in an area too long that have a lot of trauma, you can become desensitized. But you do that to protect yourself so you don't suffer burnout. If you've been there for 18 years, then you have seniority to say, hey, listen, can I be transferred to a different area? I'm kind of feeling kind of burned out. Give me like a month off from this high taxing area. You know, you can do that. Because the hospital I worked in, we we ran uh, three different ambulances, one in the high, high uh, crime area, one in the very slow area, and the other one in a very moderate area. So if the guys who were in the high crime area where things happen, um, they could request a break you know, or they'll do switching. You can do that. Me, I was a volunteer EMT for six years. And for me, it's just the way my mind thinks. I couldn't wait to get the trauma because that's where I excel in, you know, and I give that care. I reassure the person you're going to be okay. I let them know when you get to the hospital, this is what you can expect. Even the family members, I want them through the process. So when they get there, there will be no misstep. No miscommunication between them, security, the nurse, and then the doctor ultimately in that fashion. So I'll let them know and just ask security, when is visiting hours? When can I call to find if they stabilize my loved one? And then you ask the doctor or the nurse very kindly, could I get three minutes just to give them a once over and let them know that I'm here to put them at ease? And many times a lot of nurses say, sure, come on in because we need you to give us further information. So I kind of like coach them. So this way they can, 
It's like me being the key, the gatekeeper and I'm giving them the key so they can have free reign and understand how to conduct themselves because I understand the way and personalities of the people I work with and I understand the industry, you know? And um, yeah, that's just the way it is, bro. But um, I would say um, right now in um, this climate that I think uh, a lot of um, nurses and um, first responders, the criticism we used to give, especially in 2020 or before 2020, change as a lot of nurses, first responders, PD, firefighters found themselves the target of the invisible um, enemy, COVID. And um, a lot of them were humbled because I know more than 20 to 30 people who've passed on um, from COVID. How about just from pastors or like people with that worked within the medical field? Within the medical field. Doctors. I said pastors. I meant patients. <laughs> I meant patients. Yeah. I'm burnt um, out. You know me. I've been running meetings all day, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, first responders, police officers, EMTs, mm. uh, doctors, nurses. Um, one of the first people I saw that I knew, um, and I'll just give homage to his name, um, Anthony Causey. I went to school with him at Lafayette High School in Brooklyn. And um, back in those days, um, he was one of the humorous guys. And he's the one who took me in to teach me how to do street hockey. So as a black guy, back in those days in 1987, 1988, he took me in like, you know, color didn't matter to him. He showed me how to play street hockey. I was playing street hockey with a lot of a lot back then, um, Vincenthurst, where Lafayette was located, was filled with a lot of Italians. And it's like, oh, who's this kid? And he said, oh, this is my, my uh, classmate. His name is Rudy. And right away, I played like maybe two games of street hockey. And they're like, yo, you're pretty good at this. And like, you know, you know, and of course, you know, back then, like, oh, you don't play basketball? I say, no, I'm not really a basketball person. But um, the reason why I took on to street hockey, because the way my dad, exposed my sister and I, we were exposed to everything, every sport. If you ask me when it comes to Olympics, I love the winter sports more than the summer because my sister and I, we enjoy like curling, uh, speed skating, um, what's that, bobsledding, you know, especially that one. Um, and that was our thing, uh, baseball, football. Back in the day, we used to have um, crash derby, the cars and you know, stuff like that. So we went into everything. But when That's I started, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Back then, TV was free, not like today. But yes. um, when I saw that he was the first one I saw passed away, he worked for the New York Post as a sports um, photographer. And I saw him. I said, no, not him. I said, holy smoke. And then um, that was in April of last year. And then I just started looking. And then all the names of all the... EMTs, um, another one, Ildris Bay. Um, he was a uh, he was an EMT instructor. Um, when I first met him, I was just working behind the desk as a, a, a ER clerk. When I became an EMT, um, I trained a class with him. I, you know, you want to pick the brains of those kind of people because they give you some so much great insight into life. And, you know, just a whole slew of people. So I think 
what we saw last year with now the first responders and the uh, nurses working critical care in the ER, there was a, they were looking for empathy. And we saw in a lot of videos like, oh, I'm wearing the mask, leave an imprint under my eyes and I'm working long hours and I'm always on my feet and you don't know if you're gonna die next and I can't go home to my family. And from the people of, oh, well, you're here at two o'clock in the morning, going to, you know, please pray for us. My point is sometimes, you know, disaster changes people. It changes people. Um, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the worse, depending on who you are. Um, I saw where before the pandemic, um, a nurse who had her daughter, 15 years old, and she could not help her daughter, and then being told by the paramedics who airlifted her out, you have to drive there. She felt like one of the regular people. She could not use her nursing powers in another state to say, I'm a nurse, let me on this helicopter. This is not television. But when she went back to the hospital, she became the best nurse we had on the night shift. And she maintained that. She maintained that until, um, until I left the hospital. She maintained a very good behavior, lack of sarcasm, she did not participate in the sarcasm with the other nurses. And she started to distance herself and just be with her thoughts because she realized we are here for the people. We don't know how a person arrived to the condition that they're in, but that's not their full story because we don't know when they get on the road of recovery. Will we be there to see it and cheer them on? You know what I'm saying? So rather it's a crackhead, rather it's a... Um, and I don't even like to use that word. If it's a person struggling with an addiction, mm. any of us can have an addiction. Overeating is an addiction. You know what I'm saying? Swiping your phone every morning when you get up. Every time you hear your phone vibrate, that's an addiction. So an addiction of maybe putting some kind of substance in your body doesn't make that person less, less um, deserving of proper care. You know, And that's something we learn in EMT school. But, you know, sometimes people have a certain way of, of being judgmental. And I do hope that um, during this crisis that we're in, that people say, hey, tomorrow that could be me on the gurney. I would like someone to give me sympathy. Mm. So that's one that's powerful. I think a lot. I think we all, um, I think what the funny thing is, was how 2020 went, like Kobe passed away, you know what I'm saying? Um, I think everybody realized how I think it was that everybody realized how fragile humanity is, I would say. Mm -hmm. And then COVID happened. Yeah. Um, and we'll get into kind of like what happened last summer and everything. But one thing I really want to pick your brand about, because like I said, you you did like a little drive by gym stories <laughs> last week on the podcast. Um the Black Panthers at what did you say 16, 16 or 17? You were trying to join the Black Panthers, the Black yeah. Panthers at I think was it 16 or, or 17? Correct me if um, I'm wrong. This thing happened in 1986. So I, I just turned 16. Okay. Uh, um, if you don't mind getting into that, unless there's any statute of limitations you don't want to no. talk about and you need your lawyer present, uh, tell us a little <laughs> bit about what, <laughs> tell us about uh, what provoked you or compelled you to even, like, what, what, what was it that made you want to, like, 
get in that or get yeah. in the fight with that, if that makes any sense. Right. Um, December 20th, 1986, um, there were three young men who were driving through Queens and their car broke down. It was in Howard Beach, Queens. Uh, they went to the pizza shop to get some pizza and also to call for a tow truck. Um, they had a verbal exchange with some three or four white guys. And those white guys went to get like a mob of like 15 to 20. Back in the day, back in the 70s and 80s, it was considered common. I mean, you watch a lot of these um, black history movies as well as like in the 60s where a black person's walking home and like three or four or five guys roll up on him in a pickup truck and just beat him up with baseball bats and stuff like that. So that kind of thing continued on even into the 80s. Um, it was very um, hurtful when the, these three white, these three black men tried to run for their lives. And these are older black men too, you know, they were older. Mm. The guys who attacked them were in their teens to their 20s. And these are older black men who were family men, you know, in the 30s and 40s. And one man, he ran for his life and he ran into a freeway of oncoming traffic to escape the mob. Subsequently to that, consequently to that, he was hit by a vehicle and he was killed. Mm. I remember they um, got one or two people. Um, and the one thing within the black experience, if a person gets arrested, that's not the end all. It's like now they have to go to trial. The, the jurors have to find, based on the facts they're presented, that this was a biased crime. Back in the day, that's how they used to call it, a biased crime, racially motivated. Were they targeted because they were black or because of that strange of words led to anger and then a mob of four turned into a mob of 20? So um, I remember back then, because it was happening so often, you know, black guy get punched in the face by four or five white people. And that was just commonplace in New York City. And I'm pretty much sure much of America. So I remember one day saying to myself, wow, this is crazy. And there was a gentleman I met and I heard him talking to another older gentleman about somehow all oh, the Black Panthers chapter in um, Long Island. So I said, excuse me, sir. You know, I just ran off and said, listen, I'm, I'm tired of black people being beat up. Um, I want to do something about it. I want to be part of the of the um, of the cause, just like Hugh Newton, and to bring justice to us, so we don't have to get murdered in the street by white people anymore. And he asked me, "Young fella, how old are you?" I said, "I'm 16 years old." You know, and he's like, "Brother, you have to be 21 to own a to fire a firearm, you know, and to have license and stuff." He's in New York City back then, so I said, "Oh." Um, whatever I said, but he said, you know, if you keep that same, that same energy, um, that you have now to 21, then you could come and see us. Back then in my 16 year old mind, I was just saying, wow, what could I do to help my race of people from being killed just because of the color of our skin? You know, I, that's the way I interpret it because on the six o'clock news, that's what I was seeing all the time, you know? Angry mob attack black transit worker. <laughs> you know, there's one that happened near Coney Island. Mm -hmm. Two black transit workers were just um just chilling, getting something to eat, and they were confronted by an angry white mob. And it's like, why? 
And, you know, and they're wearing uniform. They're wearing transit uniforms. It's like, you figure if I wear my uniform, I won't get attacked. I'm not wearing a hoodie or whatever, you know, but that's all they were doing. They were just working in the neighborhood they're assigned to, which happened to be predominantly white, and they were beaten up. And that was one of those things that was scary back then. And when I look at it now, from where we went from 40 years ago to being chased down the block by an angry white mob, it went from that to police brutality where I'll beat you up and kick you and beat you up in the car to now you have a confrontation or a experience of an officer and the first thing that might be drawn is the gun. It's no more billy clubs and nightsticks anymore. Now it's bullets. Mm. And it is frightening for us to be black in America because we're wondering, I'm a good citizen. Um, to give you an idea of how a law enforcement officer thinks, you and I are law enforcement officers. We're called, because, we're called to a scene because someone calls and says, hey, there's a black guy on the corner with a hoodie on. He's been there for like 20 minutes just looking at his phone. I don't know if he's taking pictures. You and I get dispatched to that person. We see the description of the person, so he fits the description. We come up to him and say, excuse me, sir, um, or what are you doing here? We got to call someone matching description. Could we see some ID? Based on that one question, there's no indication, and I'm going to bring this part up because with the George Floyd um, situation, everyone kept bringing up, oh, but he was on drugs, and oh, he had a rap sheet, and oh, he did this, and oh, he did that, but when you and I encounter that person that first time, you and I have no idea what they're into. We don't know if they're a drug addict. We don't know if they're in a music class, went for the music teacher to pick them up. We don't know. So we can't pass immediate judgment. I'll call in John Doe, 123 Marking Board Lane. Can you give me um give me a status on this guy? Come back. He's clean. We don't have him in the system, blah, blah, blah. From there now, all one of us have to do is ask the young man, hey, what are you doing here? I'm waiting for my music teacher. He says he's going to pick me up at 4.30. It's now 4, 4.45. I was texting him. He said he's in traffic. Give him an extra 15 minutes. Okay, young man, that's cool. You know, uh, the reason why we came is because someone saw you and they were concerned about what you're doing here at the street corner for such a long time. So you have a nice day. Where in that conversation does a gun have to be drawn and a young man is on the ground with four bullets in his chest and an ambulance is being called to the scene? Sometimes the ambulance is not called to the scene immediately. The sergeant is called first so he can see, mm. okay, yeah, this person needs an ambulance. EMS teaches us from the minute of discovery of a person injured, shot, or their circulation system has stopped, the clock starts ticking. It takes four to seven minutes to dispatch us. Four to six, seven minutes to dispatch EMS, depending on where we're coming from. To get that sergeant for, hey, my gun was discharged. Um, I have a person down. See that that already that language bothers me because he says my language discharged. was discharged, not yeah. I discharged my weapon. I fired my weapon as well. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like it's the 
it's the I always tell people and like I um I even like because you know me I you know I tell you this all the time like I go to like different churches and I speak to people and I let them know that you know certain language is the language of the oppressor and gives you an out you know what I'm saying like earlier you were telling me um there is no try either you do yeah. or you don't you know what I'm yeah. saying mm -hmm. um and for him to just say oh my weapon was discharged well who discharged it because right. last time I checked Bull, um, guns don't got legs and arms, you know what I'm saying? But uh, continue, go ahead. Yeah, so the difference then, the language also um, constitutes the urgency of the sergeant's arrival. If my gun yeah. was discharged, it could have discharged my holster, could discharge as I've taken out, and I just want to cover myself in case someone got hit or there's damage to infrastructure, versus we have shots fired at this location um, male, black, down, injured, police in the bus. The bus is the EMS. At the same time, the sergeant is going to come there because you recall uh, dispatch and say, requesting a sergeant at this location. It shouldn't be, I need a sergeant at this location and let him decide, do we call an ambulance? In your human brain, you're, and not even that, through your training, you realize that nice little grain of bullet can cause a lot of destruction to change a person's life. Mm -hmm. You're trained that. That's why you're careful as to when to draw your weapon and when to pull the trigger. That's all part of the, um, the training in the academy when it comes to firearm discipline. They all go through it. So when you say your gun was discharged, the sergeant said, okay, so that's not so urgent. He would have to ask, so um, did anyone get injured? Oh, uh, yeah, a male was shot. Okay, a male was shot. Where was he shot? Look at how much precious time is running because the officer could not say, hey, that's like a 20 sec. That's like a 20-second exchange yeah. right there. Right, you know and then this back and forth over the radio. Hey, come again, repeat, you know, 10-5, 10-5. And then you go through, and now the sergeant have to determine, oh, wow, he's not breathing? Uh, call EMS. By the time EMS get there, nine minutes have passed. The brain starts to deteriorate after seven, after five minutes. You can start to have, we, we can't go without air more than three minutes before mm. the brain, brain cells start to die. That's why we have something called the golden hour between when we arrive at the, at the scene and find that person their condition, and then to get them to immediate help. It's called the golden hour. We as EMS are literally racing death, the grim reaper, to the hospital. So that put us in that position. Now, depending on how you, depending on who you are as an EMT and what you hear the officer say, you may judge the person, oh, well, um, you know, I guess he deserved it. Give you a quick story. One night, because I worked the nighttime shift, which was from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. in the morning. And it was maybe the weekend. It was the weekend. And we had a young man, Hispanic, who came in, and he was riddled with holes like 18, 21 shots, riddled from his jaw on down to his crotch. That's um that oof, that reminds me of um 
I think it was actually 16 shots. Um, Laquan McDonald that was um, mm. killed in um, Chicago um, years ago. That's that's awful, right. man. So this guy came in. We did CPR. We did everything. Um, and after that, we wash. You know, the nurses uh, wash his body because you know he was a nice looking guy, very handsome guy. And the doctors count all the um, bullet holes and we turn him over. And we saw that he was shot this way, like trying to run. So he got shot in the back also. So he caught maybe 11 here, 11 back there. And he succumbed to his wounds. After they wash his body and everything, what we do is we report it to um, NYPD. Uh, the family was coming in um, also because we found ID to alert the family. Um, and this was the first time I ever saw, cause it was a quiet day in the ER. So, you know, they had time. So, you know, they, they sponge his body, wipe off all the blood and everything. So he could be presentable to the family. So we gave him dignity. When the detectives came in, they're like, Oh, finally got him. This is that guy who's, um, a mob boss or whatever. Oh, finally got him. Bushwick is a little safer today. Wow. For us as trying to save a life, we have no idea what he did. For us, we're trying to save a it's life. Not important. Right. When they came in, for them, it's like, good, you guys got him. For us, we didn't know how to feel. Yes, the criminal is off the street. However, if you catch him and let him go through the due process, which our country promises us, mm -hmm. due process and let you be judged by the evidence presented and let the, your 12 peers, a jury of 12, come to a decision of, well, this person is guilty or innocent. That's what's supposed to happen. Not the cops being the judge, jury, and then the executioner and then celebrating, you know? Um, and that's what makes it different um, when you see all these things happening to black and brown people. And, you know, people, People don't quite understand because, you know, when we hear, you know, unarmed black person shot or in this case of um, Mr. Toledo, who was shot in Chicago, we're just, you know, unarmed person shot by cops, you know, by white cops. And then you know, our minds were so conditioned. Oh, well, he had to be doing something because we get just that two second of news to formulate a whole judgment on a person. Right. And then when further information come out weeks later or months later, they're like, oh, wow. So then why did he get killed? What he got shot for? And we're not understanding why is it that, um, you know, it's funny. I mean, you can look at FBI reports. And this is what Black people are concerned about. If I carjack someone or, or if I just steal a car and the cops chase me, and I have no weapons, there's no reason to shoot me. Conversely, if my white counterpart steals a car, and I give you guys a story, I think anyone knows about this back in, what was it, 2014, maybe 2012, um, somewhere in the Midwest, there was a white escapee. And I always tell people this story for a reason. There was a white escapee uh, from prison, prison break. He stole a car. He dragged someone out of their car. I can't remember if he shot them and if they were injured or killed. But the police and the deputies had enough information to know that he is armed and dangerous. He was confronted by two white deputies 
who are not here on this planet anymore because they decided, even though he's armed and dangerous, hey, bro, come on, brother. We don't have to do this. And he's like, I ain't going back to prison. Clack, clack, clack. Now they're not here on the planet because when people hear us saying, talking about white privilege, that's what we're talking about. A black person with, with no gun, no nothing, just gets shot down and a white person gets the opportunity to run away and live another day for doing the similar crime. Mm -hmm. And there's something about our skin that puts it in the psyche of white officers that we don't deserve to live. You know, yes. Like this is like this is a choice that we made to be put in this situation. Right. Yeah, it's a social issue that we're dealing with. We didn't we didn't ask to be raised poor. We didn't ask for racism to continue after um, the Civil War. Um, there have been so many things done to our race to keep us down that when we resiliently respond back and continue to thrive, it's almost like damn. So what else can we do to them to get them down? I mean, when you talk about the Tuskegee experiment and then people now looking at this, the V situation, they go hand in hand because people won't be afraid of the V if they won't think, well, you know, the Tuskegee experiment happened and some other experiments, experiments happened that we are not fully aware of. I think there was one in Puerto Rico. Yes. Now, and this is in the, in the 2000s. Something happened in Puerto Rico in the 2000s. You know, my Spanish listeners can sell off and say, yeah. They gave committee or something to the women. Yes, they did. You know, and this isn't into two thousands. Auntie over there, auntie over there, like Listen. coaching. What is, what is my what is my what is my aunt's hair looking like? Because I know she didn't want to show. I know she didn't want to show Black America her crown the other day. How are we doing over there, Queen? Like you over here coaching and stuff. You know, you could have pulled up a chair next to Unc. It would have been an issue at all. <laughs> She's like, Wakanda forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, but so I have a so I have a kind of an interesting interesting question. I ask everybody this question, especially that's like within our community. So obviously you know that you're black, like just by looking at it. But when what age was it, or was it a certain circumstance mm. that happened that you understood what that meant? to be a black man in America. Like for me, for instance, I was, um, I was whistling around one of my family members. I was telling matter of fact, she over here right now. Sis Remember key that was on the podcast with us, uh, last Thursday lights consisted from the, um, with the, with the, with the curls. Yeah. She had the, she had the nice, nice shiny curls, um, from Illinois last week. Um, but I was telling her like, you know, one of my um one of my people was like, hey, don't you be whistling around uh white folks, you'll end up like your cousin Emmett. And I'm like, who the hell is Emmett? You know what I'm saying? I didn't realize he was talking about um Emmett Till. And I was like, and for all I know, I mean, like, my man could have been when I say my man, my family member could have been drunk when he told me this, but mm -hmm. he still told me this. It was just like, ah, ah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But what what was it like when was it in your life i guess and i mean it's a little i guess it's a little well you were born in america right i remember you said that your people were from barbados right but you yes. were born in america yes, so true. when was it that you realized like what it meant to be a black man in america like age was there something that happened that it i guess like the question i'm asking and if it was in your childhood what was that moment when you realized that you couldn't be a, a normal kid anymore. Like, break that down for me. So two years, two different years and two different decades. 
I was six years old, coming home from school, got home around 3.30, just in time back then for Roots to be shown the miniseries in 1977. And I watched the miniseries. I did not watch the last one. I came home every day watching it, and I said, wow, is this what happened to people who look like me, is what I remembered. And then what happened is watching that and then watching the news and then watching every time, oh, we're looking for a black male who's a rapist and blah, blah, blah. And my six-year-old brain said, wow, is that why they had us enslaved because we're bad people? I started to notice that then. I was still processing. Whenever Eyes on the Prize came out with their miniseries, back in the 80s. I used to watch that because um, that was a choice. You know, funny enough, if I black and white issues were never, ever discussed in my household. Like, never, never. My father never mentioned that. My mother never mentioned that. My grandfather never mentioned it. Um, no one complained about they were held back from a promotion. No one ever complained about they were pulled over by the cops. In fact, my dad was pulled over by cops twice drunk and they drop him home, <laughs> you know? And, and you figure, okay, how come he, he survived? Your father was very light. True, my dad was very light. You were, you were looking at that as he was the anomaly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, and if it won't touch him, well, this sounds more assumptuous. Um, because it didn't touch him, maybe you thought to yourself, like, it wouldn't touch me because it wouldn't, <laughs> it didn't happen to him, if that well, makes sense. Well, no, you know, I the reason I bring that up is because, like, there wasn't any kind of race brought into the home. So for me watching that miniseries, I never asked mom and dad about slavery. Um, I watched it there, and then I saw maybe one day Gone with the Wind, because my mom used to like to watch um, those old movies. So then I said, wow. And then I used to watch a lot of other shows, Shirley Temple uh, and some other black and white shows. I said, wow. All the all the black people are doing this. Um, they're not doing no prestigious type of jobs. They're the maid, the butler, the driver, the cleaning person, the shoe shine person. So my little six six year old brain, until I got to whenever Eyes on the Prize was shown on TV PBS, that's when it hit me that I am a black person. Um, they were shown that miniseries and how the mistreatment of uh, Blacks throughout history up until, up until the civil rights um, era and much of the 70s. I remember one day seeing in that same um, show, they showed, I think, a little Black girl or boy, very dark skin. He was in the bathtub or she was in the bathtub trying to rub off the Black. I remember one time taking a bath because, um, you know, my parents let us take a bath on our own. And I snuck the comet from out of the kitchen. And that particular time, I kind of like closed the door a little bit because we never closed doors in our in my home. And I'm in the bathtub and I just take the comet trying to rub the dark skin off my, well, my, what I consider dark skin off my, off myself. Saying maybe if I turn white, I'll be light more. Mm. And I don't know if I got caught or whatever, but. I remember sitting down in the bathtub just thinking, wow, God, why do you make me like this if people are going to hate me? 
And I think what happened is if I did that back then, 1977 to 1981, 82, whenever the show Eyes on the Prize on PBS, imagine today's black child questioning their very existence, mm. you know? And it's, you know, I go back to what Jay-Z said back in um, Hard Knocks Life. Instead of treats, we get tricks, you know what I'm saying? Mm. And no one can dispute that. That's not him just trying to be cool with lyrics, but he's just saying, yo, this is what it is. This is what the black experience is for many of us. We can't perpetuate one dude or one family who made it out of Compton and went to Beverly Hills, such as the Banks family from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and say, oh, well, if they could do it, you can do it too. There's so many, many barriers for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You know, not everyone has a Serena and a um, what's her name, the Williams, um, Venus, yes. Venus Williams story. You know, not a lot of people have a Mike Tyson story. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? A lot of them do. A lot of them have that kind of story. And it's it's not a matter of how greatly educated you are, how wonderful. My 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 uncle, he was a police officer in Barbados in 1978. He came to America, 78, 79, and you know, very well educated. And he went to go for a job in the very same hospital I worked in. I'm going to keep that anonymous. And he went there. This is 1979, 1980-ish. And he was told by the white person who interviewed him, said, Mr. Edwards, I cannot hire you. And my uncle asked him, why not? Because, you know, he's a former law enforcement officer, so he's going to ask. So you are overqualified. You will be replacing me. I'm very sorry. I cannot let that happen. So my uncle now, fresh from off off the boat, as they say, from Barbados, and this is his first experience as a Black person in America. When you're outside of America, you hear all these wonderful stories and how you can make it and everything. Mm-hmm. And many foreigners I work with in the hospitals have said, you know, I don't know what we were thinking when we came over here. I would have been better remaining economically poor, according to the gross domestic product, in my little place in India, Bangladesh, Iran, Iraq, Africa, Cuba, Philippines, all those countries and maintain a sense of happiness in Burma, then coming here to America and facing all these social obstacles and being in fear if I might lose my nursing license because the white supervisor don't like me. It's like, wow. So what my uncle did, he told my grandmother, he said, you know what? I have a good idea. I'm going to go to law school. And he told my grandmother, all I need for you to do for me is just cook and iron my shirts. Because when you're in law school, you have to dress as if you're going you know, to law school, shirt, tie, jacket, etc." So, so all I need for you to do is just wash, iron my shirts, and just provide food for me while I'm um, listening to my lectures. When my parents had separated for a, a few months, we lived with my uncle and his girlfriend at that time during that time period that he was in college for, in law school. And I would hear him two, three o'clock in the morning, listen to his recordings that he 
he recorded the lecturer and then writing down notes and stuff. When he became a lawyer, he realized now he could change the system. It was, it's just one of those things, brother, that happens, you know? And people hear the stories and they figure, oh, well, you know, you're driving a Mercedes, you're driving a Tesla, so you're doing all right. <laughs> I become a target again. My windows are tinted too much and they can't tell, oh, that has to be a black guy. Let me pull him over. You know, they don't understand that. They figure that money can get you out of anything. Look at look at what? More than 10 years ago, Oprah went to go to some store in um France or wherever. And yep, I do remember that. Yep. Early, right? There's a rich black woman, and she was told no. It's like you don't recognize my face. We recognize the color of your skin, but we don't recognize who you are. And she mm. was turned away. And you know, and whatever happened out of that, the apologies and all this stuff, but still. It's just an experience that we face, and for a lot of um, a lot of white people who don't understand that, I would say to you, especially Christian evangelicals, love your neighbor, mm -hmm. pray for your enemies. Mm -hmm. Don't don't just weaponize the police because you figure this guy must be up to no good. Um, a lot of a lot of um, a lot of black and Hispanic people dress the way they do because we're trying to protect ourselves from the thugs in the hood. We wear a hat or a hoodie or a jacket and we're just cooling. And it's also another way of us protecting ourselves from being punked out on the street by another, another dude. You know what I'm saying? There's a reason why we dress that way. We don't have the polos and the khakis and the nice loafers and uh, because our environment many times don't call for that. You can do that when you're in a beautiful upper middle class neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But I'll say this, eventually one day we're all gonna be on the same playing field. And then, and I think last year you guys kind of got a taste of that <laughs> because I've always said from junior high school or so that the way white society has run to oppress black people, they're creating the Frankenstein. Mm. And I think, Last year we saw the Frankenstein come out, but it was for a reason, you know, because it's like when George Floyd got murdered, protocol for police officers says, okay, as long as I handcuff you, okay. If I need to keep you on the ground, I could keep my hand in the in the blade of your back, your shoulder blades. I'm still controlling you because it's still at the base of the neck. That's how every fighter, MMA or wrestler, knows you control the neck. If I put my hand in the top of your, your back and you're handcuffed, I'm still controlling you. I'm not applying pressure to kill you. So that's the problem that we have. That could have been a white drug addict and he would have been sit down in the police car, offer water and stuff. And people can say, no, that, no, that won't happen. I one time worked in a uh, Wall Street position and they hired a, a guy who has some kind of felony or whatever, and by court order, he had to work and maintain a job. He had to. And how many people we know, you know I'm a felon or whatever, have who look like you and I, and they can't get the opportunity. They just That's don't. why I was texting you guys earlier. Um, I had meetings with um, you know, politicians and everything today. Mm -hmm. And brother, I dress just like this. It's May the that. fourth, you understand me? I got my millennium falcon. Falcon shirt on, you know, I got 
I got tattoos on my like on my arm and stuff, and mm. I wore my hair out. And I, I was telling you about the legendary kicks day. Hold on, real quick. Hold on, real quick. I got you. <laughs> ah, and I walked into the office wearing kicks. My man. Kicks, you know what I'm saying? And and I did, but here's the thing though. I did that intent. I did that intentionally though, mm -hmm. because I'm in Baltimore. You understand me? Like I I like I know where I'm from. And when I walk out that building. I want, like, I talked to a couple of, like, the black kids, like, a couple of, like, you know, the young kings and queens that were out there. They were like, one of them asked me, are you a politician? I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah. They were like, well, why did you go in that building? You don't look like somebody that's allowed in that building. Mm. And I want, and I, just like I told you guys in that text message, I said, I'm very intentional about going in white spaces to yeah. not assimilate myself to whiteness in these spaces because mm -hmm. I don't want... I don't want the kid in the bathtub to be rubbing Comet across their skin yeah. and thinking that their hair's got to be all the way laid down to be a dignified person to talk with these folk right. that are supposed to be helping them in their community. I've I've been very intentional, or as I like to say it, I it, over the last like four to five years, I've made it known that I am not your safe friend, <laughs> if that makes sense, where I'm like... uh. I want the person that comes behind me to be able to do what I do, whether they're actually a politician or not, to be able to walk into these spaces in these rooms. And then they don't have to feel like, oh, I have to be clean collared, this is that and the third, just for you to talk to me. You know what I'm saying? Um, I'm not a respecter of persons. So I'm going to talk to, I'm going to talk to the CEO the same way I'm going to talk to the dude that's got um that's that's folding up sandwiches in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, but I've been very intentional about that, especially since God is like putting me in these places. Cause I want the black kids, the black kids on the corner to know that success can look like jeans too. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Um, success can look like um however you want to rock your hair or whatever you want to do, do that. Um, because at the end of the day, poverty and defeat is a mind state or is a mindset. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I've just wanted to be very, like I did that for them out there on the street. What'd she say? What my, what my sister Eb said? I hate that the standard boils down to look that black people must present in certain spaces in order. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm -hmm. Ed, girl, I, I'm wearing a millennium Falcon shirt, <laughs> but I, and I did that. I did that. In per, I did that intentionally because why can't um, a successful person look like me? You know what I mean? Like I can't take this off, but I could add a few, a few accessories to let people know that I don't know how to describe it. Um, that excellence can, excellence can be in a bow tie or a button up short sleeve with some, mm -hmm. with um, with some gear on and everything like that. And I can roll up to the building, bump in Jay-Z or whatever I need to do um, to, you know, kind of, you know, just be comfortable in my own skin. Because at the end of the day, y'all want what's in here. Y'all don't want mm -hmm. what's on my wrist. This is a G-Shock, whatever. But mm -hmm. y'all don't care about what's on my feet. Y'all care about where my feet are putting me into. You know what I'm saying? These Nikes got me into this room. I'm not going to step out of my Nikes now. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Um and I've been very intentional in that because at the end of the day, 
my lord and savior wore a robe <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's sweatpants, essentially i i i i'm not gonna i'm not going to i don't know how to describe it like i'm not going to dissolve myself to blend in with you guys there's no point there's just at this point i think um i think a lot of people especially people that look like us we're at that point where we're just like look you want this and you know you're not gonna get that in the waiting room so you can go and talk to the sister with the high ponytail and the hillary clinton suit or you can holler at the sister with seven piercings in her ear that's got a doctorate, got more degrees mm-hmm. than a the thermometer. You should take that chance. I hear that. For sure. I wanted to say something to what you just mentioned about dressing. When you walked in there intentionally, you're representing everyday people of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And I would tell people, even in the chat right now, when you guys get a chance, just you know, open up a side tab and go into Google and type in 1933 mobster mm. or gangster. And when you go back and you look at the way they presented themselves, these were cold-blooded killers who dressed up very fine, refined. Yeah, talk, uncle. Okay. They drank the best wine, caviar, had plenty of women, and they were not afraid of the police. Okay. So who's a real killer? What does a killer look like? What does a minister society look like? Um, Al Capone, mm. Louis Lepke, Buck Alter. Um, who else? You know, let me name down these names. Machine Gun Kelly, and not the rapper. John Dillinger. Mm-hmm. I could go on. Al Capone, Lucky Luciano. I could go on. Johnny Dio. Guardia, cold-blooded killers, dressed dignified like they're going to church. What does a gangster look like? What does a mobster look like? What does a minister society look like? What does a thug look like? 1933, mobster, Google, images, there you go. And the funny thing is, is like, I hate, and that's another thing, and I, I that's why like I'm so big. That's why I didn't care how Auntie would have looked if she would have came on camera. You know what I'm saying? Because I and you and me were talking about it. You and me talked about this um last week. Um, she doesn't have to come on camera. Black woman, you do what you want to do. You don't you don't listen to me. You you understand? But uh, but I think and even for me because like I know for instance it's rare for somebody that looks like me to be in these spaces. Yeah. Um, even to like talk with the people in which i talk to so i'm like a lot of people are like hey don't let us down when you're representing us i'm like um Mm -hmm. i hear you but here's the thing though like this is i'm gonna carry myself how i carry myself in these spaces Mm -hmm. and i'm gonna let it be known that you're gonna know me for my ethic regardless of what or the words i say better than what my hair looked like you know what i'm saying um and when i tell when i i get on people and that's why i started doing this over the last year like when people are like there's no such thing as eurocentric beauty standards i said look up an unprofessional haircut and then look up a professional haircut okay tell me what google (laughs) and tell me what i'm serious and tell me what google images shows you (laughs) you know what i'm saying (laughs) and i was just talking to sister key about we were 
me and her were right. I should have just opened the podcast with her last night, but me and Key were talking about how, like, even like better yet, we said it like this. Um, we're not allowed to enjoy the things that make us us right. without being deemed unprofessional or ugly. But then when people are white counterparts do it, they're being artistic and spunky. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And um, what'd she say? Yes, we not doing respect. Yes. <laughs> I feel that. But we were talking about that. I was saying, like, even like, this is kind of funny, and I'm going to say this on the internet. Um, mm-hmm. I don't care. I probably, this might get me flagged. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> he said, you ever notice when white people get dreadlocks, they look like the Grinch's fingers? Oh, shoot. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, what did you you want to hear something funny? I remember a few years ago, I looked, I typed in dreadlocks in uh, freaking YouTube on on um, Pinterest or something, and all these white people popped up. I said, "Wait, what happened to the black sisters? What happened to the black people? When did dreadlocks become? I'm sorry, sacred locks. Sacred locks is what they are. Yeah, that's right. We're we're right. we're destigmatizing them. Right. We call them locks. Ain't yeah. nothing dreadful about that hair. You're right. right. And the reason why they were considered dreadlocks, I think it was the Dutch who went to push forward from um the southern or the west coast of Africa. And as oh, they you got deep, talk, talk. You, know, you know how I'm gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> you know how I'm gonna be. I want people to leave here edified and something they didn't know they say, Wow, I didn't know that. So when the Dutch, I think it was the Dutch, was pushing their way through the Ivory Coast, they went further into the tree line. And what they ran into, remember the Dutch, the Europeans, they had muskets, they had guns. They were pushed back by the what they called the dreaded locks with their spears, their arrows, their shields, their machetes, and whatever else they had. And they were pushed back. So they couldn't take that part of the Ivory Coast that time. This is where you get the coin phrase of, if you're serious about taking the island, burn the boat. Yeah. So that means you have no turning back. You got to fight or die right there. So the, to- the, the phrase or the, yeah, the phrase dread locks came from them because they said, oh, the guys of the dreaded locks, you know, they pushed us back. But if you ask the African people, it's a sacred lock because each lock sometimes have a significance, which is why they may put a little seashell there or they may put a clamp there. It signifies the growth process and the journey of their life. And a mm. lot of us, we were never given that because sometimes we were ashamed of being black or knowing that or African heritage because in the Euros, in the Eurocentric um, society that we're in here in the Western Hemisphere, this is what we were taught in school. So you have to deliberately go and take a African studies class, which is what I did when I went to City College under Dr. Leonard Jeffries. Dr. Leonard Jeffries, who's alive today, taught me a lot about myself. At age 19, age 20, I learned to love my blackness more than I ever did in my life. You know, and it's funny because I said I come from a colorblind family. I didn't have the experience that many black people have to say, oh, I was called the N-word or whatever. Um, nope, but you I, did not do it. 
And my wife is Don't worry, that. Auntie. We're gonna have you on here later yeah. this week. I don't know. So you might if you need to, if you need to go get your hair did so you could <laughs> bless us with your presence, you won't be on here next week, too. Maybe I don't know. We're gonna work that out. I'll have my people call your people. Continue on. <laughs> Wakanda forever. <laughs> Wakanda forever. Throw that X up, Jeremy. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> yeah, but then Dr. Leonard Jeffries taught me about myself, and I was unashamed to learn my own history. And, you know, it's funny, um, growing up in the 80s, what we were showing about Africa was starving people. What's that uh, song back in the 1980s? We are the world. We are the children. Well, all we saw was Ethiopia starving and places starving. One day when I saw um, something outside of outside of South Africa, which is considered the most developed place in Africa, an airplane flying out of Africa, I said, wait a second, they have airplanes that go to Africa? Blown away. I was, then I, my parents brought me encyclopedias. I was blown away that Africa had roads, they had a monetary system, they had capitals, they had presidents, they had kings, they had queens, they have gold. Not all of it is given to um, the culinary um, oppressors. I said, holy smoke. I had no idea. I even got a picture from out of there. And I think I ran to my mom and dad, look, look, mommy, look. Africa, they have streets and they have cars and they have airplanes. They don't just have zebras and gazelles and giraffes. And my life was changing right there. And I said, wow, all this time, never knew. And that's why when the climate we're in today is that when Black people are now saying, listen, we're not angry at a white person. I don't want white people to, to think we're angry at every white person. What we're angry at or disturbed about is the system that says, living in New York City, and a lot of New Yorkers can vet this, going to St. Mark's and 3rd Avenue, there's a lot of white kids who can sit down there, not too far from um, NYU University and St. Mark's comic book shop, and sit down on the sidewalk where there's plenty of foot traffic and just eat and drink their Starbucks with no one bothering them. No one at all. It's been going on for decades. If I stop, it's like, hey, what's he doing? Oh my God, he's trying to set us up. It's not that. You're not giving me a chance. You're allowing my skin color to dictate something. What if I was to say, well, I'm afraid of every white person because they're going to, they might be a racist. Not every black person is a thug. Not every black woman is a single mother who is happy to, talk, be sir. to be a single mother. You know, not all of us come from a home run by a single parent. We have we come from two-parent homes, some of us. Many of us come from a home where, yes, it did take the village at home to raise a child. A lot of us are enrolled in NYU. Oh, oh, talking about school. Here we go. School system, public school system. What's this? 1985, 1986. I'm in Wingate High School in Crown Heights. To show you how my family structure was, and this is what we, I want to encourage our Black people to be more involved in your your child's life and what he's doing academically, being more involved in your niece and nephew's life 
academically. Get on par with your sister, your brother. Forget whatever little sibling rivalry you have or whatever. Think about tomorrow's future. 1985, 1986, I'm in Wingate High School. We have like a little family get together. All the aunts and uncles and cousins are there and we're laughing, joking around, da, da, da. And in my, in my heritage, the main question is, as it is in most African cultures, hey, how are you doing in school? I'm like, oh, I got A's and B's. I'm doing good in every class, straight 90s and 100s. Really? What school you go to again? Wingate High School. Oh, that's a little performance school. Of course you can get 90s and 100s. Oh, so my aunt, she asked my mom and dad, hey, they call me Junior. I'm, I'm Junior to my father, Rudy Sr. Why don't you get Junior to take a citywide entrance exam and get him into a higher performing school? She explained to them how to do that. And I went to my counselor. Remember, public school system is free in New York City. At least back in the 80s, it was. So I make an appointment with my counselor, this older lady. <laughs> she didn't, she wasn't well suntanned. Yeah. And I told her, hey, listen, um, I like to take the test to get into like Lafayette or John Dewey, Grady, New Utrecht, one of those high-performing schools. She said, um, what make you think you need to go there? Your aunt, I see, and she pulled my stuff up on the computer. You're doing great here. Why do you want to leave? And I explained mm -hmm. to her, I said, well, you know, it was suggested to me, you know, I could try one of those other schools. Oh, I need to see your parents' income. I need to know if they're married legally and all this other stuff. So I went home like a diligent black kid doing the right thing. Mom, dad, they want to see your income. They want to see your marriage license, da, da, da. I brought all that the next day, the very next day. Oh, oh, your parents make too much money. Oh my God. I don't know if you leave the school now, you won't be able to get back if it's a mistake. Where you want to leave and oh my God. Your parent, your, is, your, is your mother, are they legally married? Is this, is this a copy or is this the original? All of that just to keep me out of a high-performing school that is free to any New York child. All of that. I forgot what I said. Now, I started to stand up for my parents. And, I, and this was very unusual for me because I wouldn't stand up to an adult. I said, but isn't New York schools free? Is that public education? She said, yeah, yeah, but still, if you go there and it's not for you, you can't come back here. I said, well, that's what me and the family decided we're going to do. Oh, okay, here's the papers. And, she, ah, ah, and just, oh, and if it don't work out. You can't come back here. You have to find a new school because we won't accept you back. She stamped it and gave me my approval. One Saturday morning, I took the placement test for Lafayette High School. I, Lafayette, Brooklyn Tech, and one other. Lafayette accepted me. High-performance school, I was truly academically challenged. And I thank God for my Aunt Celeste, who mentioned that to my mom and dad. Long story short, brothers and sisters, if you can get involved in your, your daughter, your son, your niece, your nephew's life, your, your little cousin, and help them do better in school, my niece and nephew, <laughs> it was a 2000, 
3, 2004, I lit fire under their butts because they were watching the news and we were trying to hear the news and they were just talking, talking, talking. Like, guys, can you keep it down? They, you know, they wouldn't stop. Like, oh, yeah, this and that. Like, guys, let me ask you a question. You're doing your homework and everything. Uh, where's, where's Iraq? And one of them said, oh, is that in Albany? Right there. I'm like, really? <laughs> From That's that different. time... From that time, the very next week, my wife and I, we bought maps, we bought academic books, we did everything. And they had personalized homework to do for us. Long story short, two years later, both of them graduated valid Victorian from their from their class. From their I know school. that's right. Yep. All it took was that. Where's Iraq located? Oh, I think it was where's Baghdad located? Yeah. Is that in Albany? Like, I said, no way. You see why you need to pay attention to the news and stop? Blah, 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 blah. And from there, they learn, got the maps, we got them all these academic books, and they put their mind to it. And they go, oh, uncle, so where is the capital of this? And where's the capital of that? I said, okay. Uncle may not know because uncle raised his ABCs, one, two, threes, and got all my degrees. You have to do that. You know what I'm saying? And they, they graduated Val Victorian from their school. And I encourage us, brothers and sisters, no matter how difficult it may seem, it's worth it. Because their kids start to believe in themselves in spite of what their friends may tell them and what the world may show them. And that's my message to that. And what I think is beautiful about that, and me and um, me and Divinity have expressed it to you guys, um, the fact that like knowing that you guys don't have any children, but you guys take the time to father and mother Amen. different people. I mean, we call you aunt and uncle and stuff like that, but this is this is missing in our community for sure. You know what I'm saying? And I mean, like for real, seriously though, like this is like a lot of our relatives are either dying off they either you know either the system got in the way society got in the way health got in the way yeah. mental health got in the way you know what i'm saying um it's just beautiful to have and just to have you guys to come into our lives like you'll talk to us till two o'clock in the morning you know what i'm saying like uncle, Ru uncle rudy cooler than a fan roll up with a with a with a robe on he's like what we're talking about what we're talking about over here young folk you know what i'm saying and i think I think that's important though because like we saw we saw like for instance mentioning the Panthers that was something that that white America was threatened of that we yeah. they were threatened of the Black Panthers being the village the Black Panthers setting up a free clinic and taking care of their people yeah. the Black Panthers edifying educating and inspiring the youth cuz as you said it earlier um you know the youth is our future and it's just great to see, though you guys are not a father and a mother to people, you still father and mother people, regardless of their DNA. And I just think that's beautiful, honestly. Like, Amen. It's, it's, it's good to see. It's Amen. good to see. Amen. Yeah, yeah man. Um, I, for real. And I mean, like, we saw that. We saw that in the Bible, like, with... um. I, I mean, I had my... I had one of my big brothers, one of my mentors on here over the weekend, David um very early on was like you know you come with me right and i'm like hey like i'm like who is this swole bald-headed 
I'm like, who is this nigga? Like, I was, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But sometimes it takes that, you know, I, I always tell people, especially like, I, I love how you challenge your nieces and your nephews because you knew they were strong, but you know that they couldn't get swole without getting sore. They had to push a little bit heavier weights up here to show that the, how strong they were. And I thought that was, I think that's amazing. And I'm happy um, they're able to have that with you guys. Amen. Mm -hmm. Amen. Wow, man. Well, I think that's a really, I think that, wow, we were talking for two hours. I didn't even realize that. Good Lord. Like, <laughs> it didn't even feel like it. I feel like we just, I felt Amen. like we just started, honestly. Um, Any more questions? Yeah, yeah, I'm ready to take them. <laughs> that's, that's funny, man. Um, Man, that's, that's crazy. Wow. Um. I think this is a good way. Honestly, I think this is a you we we got a lot to unpack. I might even watch over this and just be like, I might miss something. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like I said, like 30 minutes for me. Um, I just want to say one thing. Go ahead, brother. Take yeah. the mic, take the screen, <laughs> matter of fact. Um, I just want to say something to our people. Um, and I mean the Christian, the Christian nation as a whole, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, doesn't matter where you're from. I want us to really look at the trending topics that sometimes polarize us or pull us apart. And look in your Bible and ask yourself, okay, not only what would Jesus do, what would he say, but what does the Bible say? Mm -hmm. right, right now, one of the biggest debates with the Senate is, should we have the minimum wage raised to $15 an hour? In many places, Six and seven dollars an hour. I'm like, really? That that's still a thing in 2021? And ask yourself this question, brothers and sisters. When you look at the Word of God addressing poverty, Leviticus chapter 19, verse nine to ten, tells us very specifically. And this is especially for those of us who are living an opulent lifestyle. When you reap the harvest of your land. Do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleaning or the remaining of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen from the trees. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Brothers and sisters, when we talk about justice, social justice. Understand that's something that even in the book of Habakkuk, if you read the, the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk went to God and said, hey, listen, he's a, a maybe a minor prophet. He went to God and said, Lord, how much longer are you going to watch injustice and just stand by? How long, Lord, are you going to watch the justice system do crooked things, crooked deals. Brothers and sisters, only just, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a rich young kid driving a Lamborghini or a Ferrari. He drove, he don't have the ability to control that car. What, 15 years old, 16 years old? He crashed into a family and took the lives of two people, mother and a child. This happened three different times. Two males did it and one female. And lives of the other people were taken all the time. The one thing each of these individuals, except for the female who lost control of her car, had in common, 
They have rich parents who can buy their way out of the justice system. One family is still seeking justice because the father's this rich guy who's friends with the judge. And this is the same thing that God tells us in the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is still relevant today as it was way back when. It tells us that the problems we had even in the ancient times with the Israelites, we still have them now in 2021. And by speaking out and to have my friend Casper go and to speak to the city council to say, hey, listen, I'm not coming to you dressed in a shirt and tie to make you feel comfortable. I want you to see me as I am because when our ancestors in the 1950s and 60s during the civil rights era, they wore the shirt and tie and they were still beaten by billy clubs, water hose, and bitten by dogs. So if they, didn't get dig if they didn't get dignity then, let us throw off, let's just throw on a t-shirt, rock our hats, and just go there because we're fighting to say, hey, listen, if you say you're a Bible-believing Christian, then do it all the way. Don't make exceptions. Well, I don't like the foreigners coming to my country. The Bible tells you to watch out for the foreigners. You better talk. The Bible tells us that. It holds us to that. Paul was told several times, do not forget the poor. Do not forget the poor. Please, Paul, on your journey, do not forget the poor. That's all God is trying to get us to do. Remember, Jesus said, you will always have the poor among you. Let us take in the poor and don't criticize their parents. Remember, we're born here, so we have that opulent lifestyle and mindset. They're just coming in. Like a stranger coming to your door, welcome them in. Make them feel at home. Get them alchemated to the system so they can do better and contribute to the tax system. If we make it fair for all, guess what? We wouldn't have such a big budgetary deficit. But because, we, but because we make it obscure to a few, a large minority few, this is the reason why your taxes are going up. It's not because, oh, these people coming in and they're on government welfare. It's not because of that. If there was an ability by the state government, your city council people and your senators, and then everything have to get passed by Congress, if we're now talking about equity, let the people in. We have enough laws about immigration for the last 30, 40 years, and a lot of them have not even been followed. So when you hear about, oh, but they're suffering at the border, oh, they're suffering at the border, ask yourself, why are they not being given amnesty? Ask. Ask why they're not being given amnesty. Why? Because they didn't come over on an airplane from the Ukraine, from Russia, from Italy, from, come on, brothers and sisters, we got to ask the questions. And that's why the social justice movement is important. We're not trying to rebel rouse, but we're trying to bring attention to get your conscience. The Bible says there's a point in time where if you continue in your sin, God's going to turn you over to a reprobate mind because your conscience has been seared as with a hot iron. If you ever burn any clothes while ironing, it gets singed and it can never be repaired. So if you feel there's a problem with taking care of the poor and the most vulnerable and not giving them equity so they won't be a problem or a trouble to you in your neighborhood, 
then fight for the same thing because we're on the same side. If we suffer, you're suffering too. How? If we remain poor, you remain in fear. You better talk. Because then you're worried that I'm going to come and rob you, rob your daughter, or kill your husband. And that's not what we're about. We all want the same thing. If the Constitution says we're all created equal in the eyes of God, and the Bible says we are all made in the image of our creator, then let us treat each other that way. And let's love, because Jesus said you would know them by their love. And that's one of the fruits of the spirit. And if you can't do that, brothers and sisters, you need to wash yourself again and ask the Lord for forgiveness and return yourself, stand upright and say, Father, I'm ready to do the work. Hmm. And I think what that is, is instead of trying to make America again, let's make Christians Christ-like again. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, and that's why I don't, and you know me, brother, I don't, I don't want to, this, this sounds <laughs> kind of ignorant. Um, People that aren't saved and don't have an, an identity to my spiritual walk, I don't mm -hmm. have anything to say to you guys. When I say that, I'm, there's nothing I have to say to you because it's like, not that I don't care, but it's like, I can't hold you to a standard you didn't sign up for. Right. Mm -hmm. But. Um, my brothers and sisters, um, this is not jewelry to me. You understand me? Like Amen. this, this is not jewelry to me. I saw a lot of y'all and still losing y'all victory over, um, Joe, what's this dude's Joe Biden, sleepy Joe or whatever we call him. Look y'all. Um, um, Caesar was never supposed to be our best friend. So I don't really care what, who the president is. I know what I still got to do at the end of the day, but a lot of and a lot of the issues that have started in this country, and we won't get into it tomorrow because tomorrow is did the church fail the black community part seven? I think it oh, is. Oh, but oh, <laughs> oh yeah, I might have to have you come on. I don't know. Um, you might have to jump in this tomorrow. I don't know, man. I don't know. But I think I think what it is, and as what as my uncle was saying, is stop looking to the people that don't got it all together to get it together. Or as Martin Luther King Jr. once said, stop asking people to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and they ain't never been given no boots. Amen. It's no different. You know what I'm saying? Um, so Amen. that's all I'm going to, that's all I'm going to say. I'm tired. I got my Pfizer shot today. Um, I, I'm ugh, like, it takes a lot to look this good. You understand me? Um, I'm going to go, I'm going to go rest up. I'm going to go put my dog. I'm going to walk my dog and I'm probably going to have to slip him something because there's a storm out here and he's bugging a little bit. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It, you don't know it yet, but you're going to sleep. That oatmeal is going to have something in it. Okay. I hear that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Uncle Rudy, thank you, man. Amen. This was great. Um, if, hey, if Uncle if Uncle Rudy bless y'all, uh, please let us know in the comment section. And, um, you know, give it, I, up. give it a thumbs up, smash that like button, ring that bell. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, and also uncle Rudy, you don't, don't move too fast now. Cause I found out you was hiding something from me. You got a YouTube channel. Um, can you, can you, uh, let us, can you let the, the public know black America, white America, um, saints and ain'ts, the weirdos and the arrows know where to find you. If they want to get in touch with you or something like that, where can they find oh, you brother? Amen. I'm on YouTube at Rudy. Moore Jr. on YouTube. 
And um, thank the grace of God. Our email <laughs> is ministry the number four God seven at gmail.com. Ministry for God the number seven at gmail.com. You'll find me there. <laughs> and they can just hit you up, huh? You just you just and talk then, to anybody, huh? You know what, man? One day I'm going to need several segments to explain the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. We're going to have that. I already told y'all. And I and Auntie, I don't know who you got to talk to to get your get your crown shine, but you on here. Yeah. Yeah. Auntie, you on here next week or this week. I don't know. If I'm feeling froggy, if you're not doing anything tomorrow and I'm free around lunchtime, don't make me text you. I'll do it. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, I'm happy you enjoyed it, Eb. I mean, like, and this won't be the last yeah. time that um, Uncle Rudy will be stopping by. Um, the podcast is a revolving door, so um, it's kind of funny. Um, for those that that those that go to church, my podcast heard they tend to be a little Pentecostal from time to time. They kind of mm -hmm. just go and go and go time wise. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I thought this was good, man. But I just want to say one thing to the audience. Um, I love you guys. Thank you for tuning in. I want you to know, one of our civil rights leaders said, if there's no struggle, then there's no progress. Mm. And the same way, Jesus said, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. Mm. Continue to push your plow in the name of Jesus. Be the example, because you and I, may be the only example of Christ that many people will ever see. So be that example. Remain encouraged. Mm. I received that shoot. I'm, Praise I'm, God. Man, as, much, as much as I got to, as much as I'm out here in these streets, Praise streets God. with a C, understand me? Um, <laughs> um, thank you, everybody, for tuning in tonight. Um, once again, I'm going to be back here tomorrow for Did the Church Fail the Black Community Part 7. You know what I'm saying? 7 is the number of completion, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, even though we're going to keep having these conversations until Jesus comes back. So I'm going to keep flipping y'all tables over. I'm going to keep making y'all mad because white fragility is my favorite salad dressing. You understand me? Um, thank you, everybody, for tuning in tonight. Please be safe. Please love each other. Um, and please um, learn, not so much learn to smile. Um, Learn to love yourself so you can yeah. actually have an organic smile. And, you know, it's okay to not be okay during this time. Cling on to those that are around you. And if you've got a dog, where's this little goofball at? Ah! <laughs> you know, I wasn't kidding. He's right underneath me. But, you know, whatever whatever that, that God has given you to give you that organic joy. And I'm over here messing with him because, you know, he he's always happy to see me. You know what I'm saying? Um, but I say that to say that, you know, don't lose sight of, you know, in the midst of all this darkness that we're going through and everything like that, focus on the things that light up your world during this time. Um, whatever that is, whether it's in a conversation, that's an encounter, whether that's an activity, whatever. And for the, you know, for the brothers and sisters, if it's a glass of wine before bed, do what you need to do. Cause y'all already know what I say on here, which y'all, if you gotta, if you gotta smoke, come on here or watch this, go ahead drink a glass of wine, do what you need to do. Just don't get naked. And if you're watching this at home and you're naked and you're watching this, I'm concerned. 
I'm I'm gonna fill you in with a therapist. I'm a little concerned about your <laughs> everything up here, but that's besides the point. Always remember you are beautiful, blessed, and beloved. Uh, what's that other thing I always say? Oh, um, Jesus wasn't white, and raisins don't go on potato 